It is a great honor and a personal pleasure also for me to uh, introduce President Jean Lemierre of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. I have known uh, Mr. Lemierre um, since uh, June 2000. I, I was uh, a legacy of the previous uh, president uh, uh, of the EBRD who had appointed me, I think, just a few months uh, before uh, uh, he actually was to leave. And uh, some uh, argued that it was because, not because he decided to go to the IMF instead, but because he realized he'd made a mistake in appointing me as, as chief economist there. And I think the president probably agrees with that. Um, Mr. Ramier has a distinguished career in uh, international finance and um, uh, macroeconomic fiscal policy management, um, going in sort of uh, reverse um, uh, chronological order. He um, was director of the French Treasury from 1995 until his appointment at the EBID in 2000. He served as a, measure, as a member of the European Monetary Committee from 1995 uh, on to 98, and um, he was... Um, Chair of the European Economic Financial Committee and Chairman of the Paris Club, uh, which, uh, is the entity, as you know, involved in settling uh, uh, sovereign debt claims. He's also served as head of France's Internal Revenue Service and as head of the Tax Policy Administration and as head of the private office of the Minister of the Economy and Finance. He is also probably uh, the, um, the quickest and the, quite the sharpest mind I've come across in my professional career, economists, profession, uh, academics like to think that all the smartest people go into academia. After meeting Zonemier, I knew that wasn't true. Not only does he know a lot of macro and monetary economics, which you would expect given his CV, I was always astonished at how he managed to see through the complex structures that the bankers at the EBD would put together and uncover just the incentive problem or the potential conflict of interest that was hidden behind often very complex and opaque uh, uh, figures and, uh, and considerations. I look very much forward to what he has to say. He will be talking for the next 30 to 40 minutes, or as long as he wants to, on Russia and Europe, new neighbors defining a new neighborhood. After that, there will be time for about 25 minutes of Q&A. Monsieur Le Thank you. You want me to, to speak from here? Or you can speak from there if you prefer to stand. Yeah. Certainly. Would like some? Oh, yeah, water there. Oh, there's water. Thank you. Well, it's a pleasure to be here this uh, this evening with you. Uh, you understand that uh, Willem and I we have been working uh, together for some years. Uh, I have made many mistakes, and he has helped me to avoid a few of them. So I'm uh, very grateful to him. Uh, <coughs> I'm supposed to speak to you uh, this evening about uh, Russia and uh, Europe. Uh, I'm going to disappoint you first because I will not be provocative. Uh, Willem is my master in provocation, so I will not try to compete with him. I'm sure he will have very provocative questions and, uh, and remarks. I must also apologize to many people here who certainly know much better than I do uh, Russia and, and the region. Uh, some I don't know here, some I know, they are my colleagues in the bank, and they spend a lot of time in the region, and uh, I would like them to correct uh, or, uh, what I say if they, afterwards uh, they think I'm wrong. Uh, Russia, Russia and Europe, it's a very difficult topic. Uh, 
And I will not try to give uh, to you a very blunt views, uh, clear lecture, you know, the French way. I've been living in London now for too long, and I've been working with Willem for too long uh, to be able to do this. Uh, so I will simply share a few views with you. From, from a point you need to understand, which is uh, my, my job is uh, to try to make the two compatible when they can be compatible. So I, I shall try to explain to you how I see the situation, maybe from the European viewpoint or London-based viewpoint, but also from the Russian viewpoint. Because if we want to be, to be uh, fair and if we want to prepare the future, we, we have to go slightly beyond headlines, emotions, uh, hard words, but to go to the bottom of the stories and try to understand what is the real debate and what perceptions are. Because words do matter, but perceptions even more. I'm not sure the economist will acknowledge this, but perceptions are very, very important. So first, uh, the, the theme about Russia and Europe is, is a question of, is, is a paradox, huge paradox. Uh, why? Russia in the history, long history of Russia, very few know, very few people pay enough interest to the Russian history. And, uh, but in the long history of Russia, Russia has probably never been so open to the West than now. And Russia has never been so open to the West since the fall of the Berlin Wall. It's certainly the case uh, uh, since the uh, revolution, but it's probably even the case before, even if some Tsar has tried to be open to the West. But Russia as such today is certainly more Western-minded than it has never been, ever been. Uh, the second point which is striking is uh, the number of Russians visiting Europe has dramatically increased. The flow of businessmen, tourists, students is absolutely amazing. By the way, there are many more Russians visiting Europe than Europeans visiting Russia. I would like you to take that point because this is probably part of the difficulty. There is certainly a lack of understanding about Russian culture, Russian history, and what we see today is a very, very slow attempt to fill the gap. And if I may add one comment, visiting St. Petersburg is not really visiting Russia. <laughs> uh, St. Petersburg is a nice place in Russia, but uh, if you don't go to Yekaterinburg, to Rostov, to Krasnodar, uh, to uh, Kazan, uh, and I'm not speaking about Vladivostok or Chelyabinsk, or, you, you do not understand. You do not understand Russia. And very few people have made the effort to understand Russia. At the same time, Russia is, is open to the West. We see uh, a, a growing tension. Words, words I've said do matter. I'll tell you a story, which is very interesting, for me at least. I always used a simple word describing what should happen in Russia as market economy. Russia should promote market economy, market-based economy, market-based principles. Not long time ago, a highly distinguished journalist, I hope he's not here, came to see me and said, I do not understand what you say. Why do you speak about market economy? Why don't you speak about capitalism? Well, I, I was very surprised. 
capitalism is a very aggressive word. It means we have defeated you. And you stick to our values, capitalistic values. I think that's, that's a danger. The same way we see words coming from, from the Cold War in many speeches in Russia. So you, we have never been in such a paradox, which is very, very striking these days. Now, from, from this point, I would like to go to perceptions. Uh, there is a difficulty between Europe and Russia, and probably the West and Russia, if I may use this word, the West meaning including the United States and, and Canada, is that we do not understand, we do not read the 90s in the same way. Here, the 90s, the time of opening, liberal economy, uh, democracy. All of this has been stopped in 98 by a financial crisis. But we look at the 90s as the beginning of a new time, a positive time. That's the Western story. Please do read what has been written at the time of, of the death of uh, former President Yeltsin. He's a hero. You go to Russia, the opposite. The 90s are years of poverty, increase of, uh, decrease of life expectancy. People are poor. People die. It's a time of humiliation, political humiliation, economic humiliation. It's a time when many Russians think that a small group of people have cheated the country. Small group of people, some oligarchs, and Western banks and Western advisors. Let's be clear about this. And that difference, that gap in the perception, creates a real difficulty. You see, we see in the EBRD day after day. And this is the source of tensions. And one easy source of tensions is that Russia has challenged some decisions taken uh, at the beginning of the 90s, especially the privatizations and the uh, selling of some assets. And it has created an obvious tension, uh, and the debate is simple. We say in London, this is about sanctity of contract. They say in Moscow, this is about legitimacy of contract. And of course, you open a terrible debate when you go there. And it is very difficult to rebalance. And we see certainly a period of rebalancing of what has been done in the 90s. And it does create, you know this, you see this, maybe day after day, but certainly last year there were many cases uh, uh, when you could have seen this, you see a real, a real difficulty. Now I said that probably Europe is diversified on this. The perception about uh, uh, the change and, uh, is different in Europe. Probably in London, the view is the 90s were good. When I go to Germany, when I speak in my country, the view is not the same. And perception across Europe about what has happened in the 90s is certainly not the same. It has a lot to do with politics, and it has a lot to do with economy. I'll come back to this probably in my conclusion, but there is clearly in the experience of the 90s in Russia a challenge to the liberal model which was implemented in a very harsh way. Transition is first about destruction, but they haven't forgotten. 
we, we have made a survey in the region, uh, including in Russia. We have interviewed 30,000 people, asking them a question about the past. How do they see the past? Well, they say, before 91 was not great, but not bad. They say, don't speak to us about the 90s. Never. That was really bad. And I think we should understand, acknowledge this point, if we want to improve the understanding among Europe, uh, between Europe and, uh, and Russia. So the perception is uh, uh, certainly uh, not the same. The second gap in perceptions is the extraordinary situation we know day after day is the different perception between the business people and the political sphere. Business people are positive. They invest. You see a growing flow of investments, and they invest not only in oil and gas, but they invest in many activities. The FDI has picked up quite a lot, and now you see a lot of investments by Russia, which was not the case a few years ago. From a business viewpoint, the situation is positive, and many people will tell you that they do good business in Russia. The rule of law must be improved, yes. Corruption is still high, yes. But business can be developed in a rather sound way. Of course, there is a debate about the strategic sector, the non-strategic sector, but it has a lot to do with the way you share the upside. And certainly, the way you share the upside has changed over time. But this is well understood by the business community, and they welcome it. At the same time, Russian investors do use more and more uh, uh, the Western world, especially the financial uh, uh, place of London. Uh, many IPOs were made here last year. They raised, they tapped the international uh, capital markets uh, more and more in a very efficient way, and I hope it will continue to be like this. The political sphere, you have a different uh, uh, debate. You, you have the debate you know. I will not uh, uh, mention too long, too long the uh, debate between the UK and Russia about many questions. You, you have the debate about the, uh, the pipelines. Uh, you have the debate about the neighboring countries. Uh, you have the debate about Kosovo. You have the debate about Georgia. And you have the debate about the freedom of press in, in, in Russia. So you, you, you have also a gap there in the perceptions of various groups uh, in, your, in Europe and, and in Russia. So this does create a very complicated picture. At uh, the same time, it's clear that this picture has been made more complicated because the two parts of Europe have uh, a strong reason uh, uh, to behave well and they have mutual increasing interdependence. What, what, are, what are the points? Uh, first, energy. Now, I think the main uh, uh, link between the eastern part of Europe, or Russia and Europe, is uh, energy. Uh, yes, uh, Europe imports 25% of uh, its gas from Russia. And if you look at some countries, uh, this percentage is even higher. If you look at Germany, if you look at Central Europe, it's even higher than 25%. But at the same time, we should not forget. So 25%, what does it mean? Uh, Russia has become a superpower, a gas viewpoint. Uh, people are very worried about this. Uh, they ask questions about the, uh, uh, the fact that Russia is a reliable partner. Aren't they going to increase the prices? Aren't they going to squeeze countries? The incidents uh, about Ukraine or Belarus have created uh, some concerns, if not panic, 
at that time in some countries. Uh, so th there is a growing uneasy, both need and uneasiness about, about energy. Now, we should look at the opposite side. Russia exports 60% of its gas to Europe. So it's a big market, and they need Europe. And a seller needs a buyer. That's obvious. At the same time, we shouldn't react in a too harsh way. The buyer can adapt what he does. The seller can. Yes, Russia can say, I'm going to sell more gas to China tomorrow. Okay. Big, big blow on Europe. But at the same time, it's balanced. Europe can adapt. And, and in history, uh, you have seen this, especially in the 70s. Uh, the key element of European economies is their adaptability and their capacity to react to a challenge. So yes, when you sell gas, you, you, you may think you are strong, but at the same time, Europe can diversify its sources of energy, can uh, shift to different sources of energy, nuclear energy, certainly one of them, renewable, whatever it is. So it is not a given fact that Europe will import 25% uh, of its gas from, uh, from one source and one country. So you see that if you look at this in the medium term, all these uh, energy debates, which are very crucial uh, for the relationship between Europe and, and Russia, must be looked at in, in, in a way that it is a positive challenge for the two and not an antagonistic one. Second, second reason why uh, the two parts of Europe uh, must uh, speak more uh, to each other, it is uh, diversification. Diversification is a simple word to capture the fact that Russia will not and mustn't be based, an economy based on oil and gas and raw material, but must diversify its structure. This is a crucial question for the Russian. The Russian know that very few economies in the world have been able to succeed only with gas and oil and raw material probably the UK, probably Canada and the US, maybe Norway, but beyond this, uh, there are not so many positive cases. And it's clear that they want to be in the first group and not in the second one. This is the main driving challenge. Uh, diversification of the economy means rebuilding an economy based on industry and based on services, and being part of the global economy, competing in the global economy. This is the profound view of the Russian leaders, but this is also the profound aspiration of the people. When we have asked them what they want, this is what they want. And they want to go back to the history they had, and they have a history about industry. But all of this is about investing, is about skills, access to market, knowledge, know-how, and it's a lot. And Russia needs to acquire this. Maybe Russia has more money today, but Russia needs skills and access to market knowledge, management knowledge, technological knowledge. So there is a common challenge there. Why is it so important? I see this not only as a crucial challenge for Russia, and this is certainly the point made uh, by the Russian leaders, uh, but it is very important for Europe because the stability of e the eastern part of Europe, the stability of a supply of energy is a key question. And nobody should underestimate the complexity of Russia. It's a huge country nine time zones. Uh, it takes longer to go from Moscow to Vladivostok than to go from here to uh, many cities in the US. It's a huge country. And the complexity of these countries, in which, by the way, population is declining if nothing is done, 
if there's no reaction on the decline of population. You know that the best studies uh, tend to say the population of Russia should decrease by a third, 50 million, in for 2050, which is a sharp decline. And this is a big concern for the Russian leaders. All of this must be based on a different type of economy, which is once more diversified, industrially-based, uh, service-based, with uh, skills. That's a key role of the EBRD. The key challenge we have is to do this, which is to bring investors to promote standards, corporate governance, uh, to fight against corruption, to make sure that there is a sound benchmark in the economy to structure the microeconomy in a sound way and, and building step-by-step step a sounder economy. So diversification is a, a, a positive challenge for the two sides of, of, the, of Europe. But at the same time, it is an opportunity. It's a market. They buy equipment, they buy skills, uh, and it's a growing market in itself. When you see the number of automotive companies investing into Russia today, you see that the market is growing, and very sharply. So I will not be longer on this. You understand what I mean, but this is certainly a key element in, in the dialogue between uh, the two parts of the region. We have a third reason why we should cooperate more is uh, the regional challenge. Uh, the future of Belarus, the future of Ukraine, uh, the future of uh, Moldova, to a large extent, with the frozen con uh, conflict of Transnistria, the, the future of Kosovo and the Balkans, uh, the future of uh, Caucasus and Georgia, are common challenges among us. And it's clear that these, these challenges are very important for Western Europe. They are important, too, for, for Russia. And these are questions on which the dialogue uh, uh, must, must be improved uh, to try to reach uh, positive conclusions or at least to manage this in, in a positive way even if some conclusions are, are difficult to make uh, just by now. So then you, you have the question which is how to do this because it's not easy. How to do this? Uh, I, I would insist because uh, this is certainly the point of view I have uh, from the EBRD on the role of multilateral institutions. Uh, EBRD has been promoted the dialogue between these uh, two parts of Europe now for uh, 16 years and we have been created for this. Under conditions, conditions are about governance, corporate governance, standards, quality. And that's a key element on which we need to work together, which is how to promote quality on the two sides. You can understand that this uh, first point is being enhanced by the reverse situation. Russia today has accumulated some money. They have a few large companies in some sectors. They have accumulated uh, money for the state, and it is well managed from a macroeconomic viewpoint. And, and Russia is asking for reciprocity today, investing in the West. This is part of a growing story, and you see many, many attempts for uh, investments in Western Europe you'll see also tensions and conflicts, and it is not well understood what could be done. So the fact that all the partners respect high standards, corporate governance, quality, understand the rule of the game, the rule of law, and play the same way in the uh, global economy is a key one. The second forum on which I would like to insist is, from our viewpoint, the key importance for Russia to join WTO. Mm -hmm. 
it's clear that uh, being part of the global economy, being a G8 country, and not being part of WTO is not right. And the sooner Russia can join WTO uh, in a competitive way, and Russia must be ready for this, uh, will be positive. It will be uh, certainly a key driving element uh, for the Russian economy uh, and, and the relationship uh, with Europe. You have quite the same type of dialogue with a forum like the OECD. It is very interesting to see that Russia wishes to develop a dialogue within the OECD. And OECD is about policymaking, standards, references, benchmarking, and also peer pressure and, and criticism in this forum. And this is a positive approach, and I hope that the dialogue within the OECD uh, will be developed soon. Having said this, uh, I would like to share with you two points to explain to you why, despite difficulties, despite questions on the democratic road Russia may follow at a difficult time, which is a time of elections, presidential elections, parliamentary elections, presidential elections in, in, some, uh, in some weeks now. Why uh, I am uh, confident about the, the fact that the relationship uh, must improve beyond the challenges. There are two key forces in Russia which are playing very strongly in the medium term for an improvement. The first one is over the 15 last years, and despite the 98 crisis, the amazing growth of the private sector. We see this entrepreneurship is developing, SMEs, medium-sized companies are growing, large companies are growing, and it's not only about oligarchs. It's, a, it's also about sound industrial companies doing business, uh, willing now to buy assets in foreign countries, and uh, they have a challenge there. And the private sector is, without any doubt, uh, growing in Russia. At the same time, I'm sure many people think here that Russia also has a stronger view about the role of the state. Yes, this is clear. This is clear. The state plays a role in Russia. Uh, what we have to make sure over time in this dialogue is that the state does respect the market-based rules, competition, do not interfere in these processes, let the private, leave the private sector grow a normal way and brings the input the state must bring. Uh, by the way, there is a debate in Moscow about state capitalism. I see in many academic reports and writings, not by William, not by William, but my, that the same debate is, is taking place in the West, especially at the time of financial crisis. And what is the role of the state, what it should do, what should be the role of regulations and controls is certainly growing. And I'm sure that many of you are working on this. You have, to a large extent, a debate in Russia about the role of the state. This is true. What we have to make sure is that reformers who want to develop the private sector are supported, and we see we see this these days. But the second element, which is even more important for us, is the middle class. When the EBRD was created uh, 16 years ago, there was a long debate about how to promote market economy, how to promote a democracy. And the bottom line was always middle class. The best way to change uh, the situation, to move to uh, uh, the rule of law, is the middle class. The question is, do we see it? And the answer to the question through the survey we have made is yes. We begin to see this. We begin to see a low-income middle class. It's not large, 
And, and please do forget the, the view of the oligarchs. Huh? Uh, do forget the view of the big cars and, and the yachts and so on. But look at the reality of Russia. And there is a low income middle class picking up. Uh, <clears throat> all the view we, we have made about this, is this middle class is not yet made of entrepreneurs. They are mainly managers and young managers. Most of them trained in the West, but not all of them. More and more trained in Russia. And what you, when you listen to what they say, when you look at the answers they make, they begin to speak like the middle class. They begin to have the questions, the, hope, the, the hopes and the expectations of the middle class. What do they want today? Maybe they are not speaking so much about democracy. I regret. But this is not what they speak about. They speak about access to cheap, good quality Western products. What does it mean? Food and packaging, hotels, not too expensive, capacity to travel, not too expensive, um, housing. Housing is a big problem in Russia. They want to have access to housing. So they begin to express the clear needs of the middle class. And when we look at the activities of the banking sector in Russia or, or various companies, we begin to see that this is the growing market today. And this is very well understood by many companies. So we begin to see this middle class picking up. By the way, they would like to travel more to the West. And I go back to my initial remark. There is an appetite for this. An appetite for traveling, appetite for knowledge, and for engaging. So the two very positive signals we see is certainly the private sector and the beginning of a middle class. I would like to stop here. Uh, I'm sure there are many questions. I didn't try to give figures. I'm sure Willem is very disappointed. He likes the figures just to be able to criticize them. We have picked up the wrong ones. I know him. You know, we've been working together. But more to share with you uh, trends, questions. And the bottom line is Russia is becoming more and more part of the global economy. There are forces for this, and it is not easy. And it does raise a lot of questions, political questions, economic questions, cultural questions. But the two parts of the continent have to live together and will live together. And if we are able to engage in a positive way, whatever we do, that will, be, that will create a lot of value. That's the fate of the two parts of Europe. This is part of the job of the EBRD. Uh, and I think it's moving forward in a positive way. And uh, even if we see today tensions, I think we should be honest, wait for the end of the electoral process, and look forward at what's going to happen after the uh, elections and appointments of a new president, a new prime minister, a new government. And uh, hopefully this agenda of cooperation, based on the, the same values, market-based, is going to be very positive for each of us. Thank you for listening, and I'm sure you have questions and criticisms. Thank you very much. I forsook half my ceremonial duties by not mentioning at the beginning that this lecture comes in the LSE European Institute's Future of Europe Public Lecture Series in association with the FT Business, which is a specialist
publishing arm of the Financial Times, whom we thank profoundly and uh, somewhat belatedly, but not, nonetheless uh, very emphatically at this point. So now you know. Um, right, questions. I will collect three or four questions at a time and then uh, put them to uh, uh, Mr. Mr. Lumiere. I must say I was myself very uh, struck by this uh, turning off the tables and giving us the Russian perspective both on their own recent history and on and on the West. That's something that we should all attempt from time to time to look at uh, an issue from the other man's point of view. And uh, it, it really was, but I, it really changed one's perception of, uh, of especially the decade of the 90s and the heroes and the, and the villains of the, of the period. Questions, please. The gentleman there, yes. Please keep it short. Uh, no statements, just questions. Thank you. Uh, the question I have is, does the Russian political class view the EBRD as a neutral party or as an arm of the West? If we collect a few questions, uh, another question. Um, uh, Monsieur Lumier, I know it's not in your area, but could you make a comparison with China, the way that China uh, interacts both economically and politically with uh, the outside world, and uh, Russia does? Um, lady up here. Um, if I understood you right, you said that we should look beyond the elections that are coming up, beyond the result, which we know it is. Um, are you basically saying that um, there could be democracy without, or there could be rule of law, of economic law, without real democracy? Okay. Shall we take these three? That seems quite a good place for. Sure. Uh, thank you. Thank you for the Not questions. Uh, I, I tend to, to take uh, the last question first because it's a nice answer to the, to the point about China. Uh, I'll take the two together. Uh, what, what, I've spoken a lot about perception, so I will continue to do this. You, you, you have in Moscow uh, the strong view that we use double standards. That we are not asking uh, China to deliver the same as we ask Russia to deliver. And that's your question. Could you have rule of law without democracy? Or You understand what I mean? Uh, I'm not a specialist of China, but I, I, I know the, the view of China from Moscow. And that's part of the debate. I think there is a profound misunderstanding about why are we asking uh, Russia to, to do a lot of things. I'm not going to mention words like human rights and so on. What, what, you understand the double standard question. This is a very sensitive question and very important one. And maybe I should have said this uh, up front. It's maybe because the relationship is not the same. It's probably because in the medium term, the relationship with Russia is going to be much, much closer because we are part of the same continent. And of course, we may, we may view or we may have different expectations because we are closer, because we want to do something together, which is, you know, the distance is, is a key element. Huh? I'll stop here because this is probably the best answer I can make to the two questions about democracy and rule of law. I, I do believe 
that Russia will be one day what we call a democracy. I, I do believe that the role of the private sector, that the role of the emerging middle class will play, uh, will have its impact. One of the best uh, political uh, specialists of the BRD, uh, Alain Rousseau, is certainly here. William knows him well. And if you ask him, he will say, I have no doubt. It will take time, but that, that will be achieved because Russia is moving this way. Now, you know, the steps can be difficult. Now, pure rule of law viewpoint, we see progress. You should take the business approach. Business people will tell you, no, it's not perfect. There are a lot of things to be done, but we see progress. It's clear that, you know, I've been in the EBRD now for seven years and a half, and believe me, what we have known in 2000, rule of law in Russia, is not what we see today. In the business we do, not at all. You know, it's understanding of these questions have uh, totally, uh, totally changed. And the question about China is, is the one uh, you mentioned. How are we perceived by political leaders? Uh, it's difficult to answer uh, on their behalf. Maybe it would be easier for me to explain how we would like to be perceived. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, you, you will tell me if we are perceived uh, like this. Uh, we <coughs> We pay attention to uh, uh, very few important points I, I didn't mention in, in my remarks. The first one is, yes, we support foreign investors, but we support more and more Russian investors. We have started uh, 15, well, 10 years ago with SMEs, but today we support a lot of medium-sized companies. We have equity stakes in regional banks, private sector banks, this is highly welcomed. They are Russian banks. We take part in the consolidation of the banking sector in Russia, which is a question. We support steel companies, Russian steel companies. We support agribusiness companies. We support a lot of domestic companies. And this is key for the structure of the industrial uh, uh, industry. We have uh, today, probably last year, we have invested 90% of our investments with Russian investors. So we are certainly perceived both, both sides. Yes, we are an agent of bringing foreign investment and knowledge, but we are also an agent to improve the govern corporate governance standards of Russian companies and help them to get access to the global capital markets. The third element is we shift a lot of the activities we have in Russia moving from Moscow and St. Petersburg to the regions. The EBRD has become a much more regional bank than we were before. And we have a lot of investments at the new border of Russia, which, which is in the regions, in which the potential is huge. And it has a lot to do with diversification of the economy and social stability, of, of the long-term social stability of the country. So what, what we are being asked by the Russian leaders is to do this. Uh, when we work with Toyota, we are very well perceived because we help Toyota to bring high standards in Russia. When we work with Severstal, and we have uh, worked a lot uh, with Severstal, so we, we help a lot Severstal to improve their standards and, and become a global company. But when we work 
in the regions, we do quite the same. And to a large extent, we restart the story region after region, which is exactly what we need to do. So are we neutral? I think we don't want to be neutral. We want to bring quality. I, I will finish my remark by two figures. Russia today, well, you must know this by heart, must have uh, a volume of reserve of uh, close to four, $400 billion. We invest a year in Russia, in BRD, $3.5 billion. So you could say it's nothing. But it is very well understood that through this $3.5 billion, we bring quality. And this is exact, exactly what is, I could tell you a lot of anecdotal evidences of this type of, of wishes and this type of, of discussions. And so are we neutral? No. We simply say we want to promote entrepreneurship, private sector in Russia. Okay. Yes. Uh, lady here. And then behind there. It's, and oh, let me see. One, two, three upstairs. Yes. Uh, we'll take the two downstairs first and then the three upstairs. Um, just a quick question, Mr. Lumiere. You said that Russia should diversify in order to overcome its so-called resource curse. But, um, do you know, the Russian government just adopted the three-year sliding budget, um, and it, it plans to use up most of the stabilization funds. And mostly the, it's, gonna, it's going to be this spending on social welfare, military um, uh, military spending as well, and unfortunately not so much on the development of small and medium-sized enterprises. So what do you think the implications of such budget, sliding budget, could be? Okay. Um, there was the, uh, at the back there, and then we will migrate upwards, yes. There's the late Sir Edmund Hillary. From your perspective, uh, do you see Russia moving more towards um, engaging in multilateral relations with the rest of Europe, uh, or do you see them uh, still engaging in bilateral relations, both in terms of trade and in terms of foreign policy? Thank you. Uh, yes, the gentleman on the right there. I also have a question on the uh, path to diversification. Uh, the Russian government at the moment has adopted the policy of creating several large state cooperations in various areas, be that uh, aviation construction, nanotechnology, and so on. Uh, how could you comment on that policy as the path to diversification? Right. Let's take the two more from upstairs here, the gentleman in the blue shirt, and then the gentleman on the left there. A question on Russia's sensitivity to a couple of sort of global macroeconomic factors, first of all, the current credit crunch, do you see or foresee any impacts, particularly on some of the small to medium-sized banks that you mentioned just earlier? Um, are they facing, do you see any problems related to that? And secondly, do you see, uh, in terms of diversification, have you actually tried to quantify uh, if at this point in time Russia is any less sensitive to the oil price than it was, say, five years ago? Okay. Last one over there before we go for the repast. I wonder if I can ask you to elaborate on two particular areas looking more long term. Firstly, obviously in the population context, um, what Russians view of immigration is. Um, and more secondly, what, what you think the prospects are for public-private partnerships 
on infrastructure projects going forward. Uh, on on div diversification, uh, you, you have asked many questions on the same, uh, same theme, so I will try to, to capture uh, what, what you have said in by a few remarks. First, and I say this under the control of the former chief economist of the EBRD, but the, the management, the macroeconomic management of Russia is quite sound. And I must say that we, we should uh, pay a tribute to those in Moscow who are able to manage the uh, reserve uh, fund in, in, in a strict way. And uh, when you know that Russia has one big problem, which is inflation, uh, which is normal in the, in, the, uh, in the situation of this country, you can see how important it is to have uh, people like uh, Deputy Prime Minister Kudrin uh, very good at uh, managing this in, in, a, in a safe way. And I, I think they do more than reasonably well. Uh, so my first point is uh, be very, we are very uh, positive about the fact that the money of the uh, stabilization fund is not spent uh, too quickly and, uh, but for macroeconomic reasons. The, the second point is what are the main uh, needs of, of Russia today? If you want to grow a, a stronger private sector, they have mainly two needs, and there are uh, two aspirations of the people. The two needs, the two bottlenecks today, is probably no longer about the banking sector, even if there are questions, I'll come back to this. The two bottlenecks are about infrastructure and uh, about electricity power. This is maybe a surprise for most of you, but Russia is a country uh, uh, in which the production of electricity is uh, limited. And you know that there are electricity cuts, which is a big social problem, because you die if there's no heat in Siberia in the winter. So this is a very serious question. So you have two bottlenecks, infrastructure and power, and they need to put a lot of money there. What have they decided to do? It's not so much to use the stabilization fund. That's maybe the debate, the economic debate we need to have. They, they move more to uh, a private sector approach. You have on the uh, uh, infrastructure, the key wish, and this is my answer to you on the PPPs. It's clear that today we are working on some PPPs in Russia. The best example is the uh, Western High Speed Diameter uh, around St. Petersburg. It's, it's a big you know, bottleneck. But we have taken uh, initiative uh, a few weeks ago. We have taken an equity stake in the subsidiary of the uh, Russian railway to promote the uh, transport by container, for instance. You know that the rate of containerization of the transport in Russia is very low. And it's, it's crucial for them to improve. So you see a wish to go and tap the private sector, the skills and the money, to do this type of job. Concessions, PPP, are going to increase. This is the clear, clear policy. Why? Because they know that they need so much that the money coming from oil and gas is not enough. Uh, they need to use the private sector money and skills. Uh, power, you have exactly the same. You, you have the, 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 probably the largest reform in Russia today is the reform of the electricity sector. Decision has been made 2001-2002 to keep in the public sector the grid but to sell to the private sector the uh, uh, generation plants. And this is what, what is being done. Some of them are being bought by Gazprom. Some of them are being bought by private sector uh, interest in Russia. 
or foreign investors. You have many interests by companies like Aon, like uh, uh, NL, and, and so on. So you, you, you have a strong private sector mobilization to, to try to address the two bottlenecks. Now, when you say that with this money, uh, they, they do pay attention to development. And you know that they have created uh, the Russian Development Bank has been created last year and <coughs> using uh, part of the money coming from oil and gas uh, to finance some infrastructure, to finance SMEs, some projects. Uh, I'll take uh, another example. Uh, they have allocated uh, some uh, budget money uh, for the development of venture capital funds. They have launched the program of venture capital funds. May I remind you that all of our countries in Europe uh, 40 years ago had put public sector money to do this. Uh, this is not uh, a new story. But what is the key question? Is how is it done? The question is not so much that the money comes from this, from, from the budget or the, uh, the stabilization fund when they do this, is that the money is managed according to market-based rules. And this is very, very important that there is no distortion. And that's what we try to support. We have joined uh, one of these uh, uh, funds, Venture Capital Fund, at the request of the Russian government to make sure that the money is used according to market-based principles. And of course, we pay a lot of attention to this. So I go back to the economic history of our countries in which you have seen quite the same. I must say that in many countries, uh, they have wished on EBRD to do this 40 years ago. But uh, <laughs> that's exactly the job. Uh, we, we try to do. Uh, bilateral or multilateral uh, concept. Uh, I think the answer is not so much in Moscow, but in Europe. Uh, the question is, is Europe going to have a multilateral relationship or continue to speak with many voices, mm -hmm. or does Europe want to speak with one voice? Mm -hmm. I'm not so sure it's a question for Moscow. It's more a question for Europe. I must say that in many, many sectors, it's not so easy. And the one on which it is very difficult, it is energy. When I'm in London, energy security can be achieved by the market, by a multiplicity of short-term contracts. Uh, when I'm uh, in some countries in the continent, uh, I have the impression that security can be achieved by long-term contracts at fixed prices. So you, it's a European question. Uh, and, and there is a debate in Europe about this. There is a debate between Europe and Russia on this, and let's once more clear, there is a seller and there is a buyer. So most of the questions you have raised are in the hands of, of the European. And this is a big, uh, big debate. I, I do believe, because I'm profoundly a European, I do believe that some degree of coordination would be good in many cases. Uh, uh, but that's, uh, you, know, you know well the debate, and this is uh, profoundly uh, a European uh, debate. About the uh, credit crunch, and uh, first, normally I, I watch television to see what Professor Beuter says on the question, and I'm sure he has done it today. Uh, but uh, uh, I, I, I think Russia is, is in a very specific situation. First, in the summer, we, we have seen tensions, and there were tensions, you know, liquidity tensions in, in the banking sector. You know, we, we know well, we, we have a lot of uh, stakes in, in many banks in Russia. And we have seen tensions. It has been put under control by the central bank. Uh, they have done the job. Uh, but it shows uh, uh, that, that there is some fragility uh, behind this. 
do, do I think that they, uh, Russia can be immune from any uh, Western movement or in the financial sector? I, I do not believe. Uh, I do not believe this. Uh, I do not believe in the decoupling theory. Uh, either you have a global world and everybody is, uh, is challenged by this type of movements, or you don't have. You cannot say there is a, a country is part of the global economy and, and don't see that there is, of course, an impact. Uh, what is going to be tested everywhere, not only in Russia, is the quality of banking supervision and the quality of risk management. And at the end of the day, this is what we are going to say. We in the EBRD pay a lot of attention to the sustainability of the private sector banks. Because, of course, by definition, they are rather new, they have a rather low capital, and they have to be we are very careful, we are working with them to make sure that uh, it, works, uh, it works well. But of course, there is always a question about uh, the impact of, of this uh, uh, financial tension in the world on a country uh, like Russia. Uh, is Russia immune uh, because of diversification? Well, I wouldn't say this today. I think this is what, they, what is wished and what should be achieved. But it's clear today, oil and gas and raw material play a very important role in the uh, Russian economy. Maybe, unfortunately, we may see some Dutch disease. And what's happening, I'm sorry, William, <laughs> all this. Uh, but, uh, well, you know what I mean. But, uh, but it, it, it does, it does still, uh, it, it is a very strong reminder that diversification is even more important than before a country like Russia can only grow if there is a diversified uh, economy more balanced and uh, more dependent on a few products and then on a few political attitudes but much more diversified. May I say and address a point I've made a few minutes ago because there are two aspirations in Russia. When you ask the people what they want when you ask the middle class and what do they want they want mainly three things. They want a job, they want better education, and they want health. I would say that the two first are aspirations. That's what they want. The last one is a fear. And this is certainly one of the key questions which has to be addressed for the people, for the transition process to have a positive impact, which is health. We see this in Russia, but we see this in all the the countries in the eastern part of Europe. When you ask people what was the life at the time of, before 91, they say, life was not bad. Uh, everybody had a job. Everybody had an income, a low one. Uh, it was quite boring. No opportunities. But, okay, education was quite good. We know this. And everybody had a decent possibility of access to hospitals and, and medicine. Today, they say the world is totally different. It's not, it's different. It's a world of opportunities. It's great. Uh, you can uh, even not go to university and have a good car and make, make money. Yeah, it's, and they, they are slightly shocked. Huh? They say, this is great. You know, it's a world of opportunities. It's a world for young people but it's very, very insecure and very unsafe. What's going to happen tomorrow? Are we going to lose the job? Uh, it's totally. Mm -hmm. And they say, but on top of this, part of the problem is that 
uh, we, we think that education uh, is still a problem. <coughs> that the education system is not well adapted to the needs of the new society. It's about management, it's about law, it's about all of what we speak about. But it's, it's also about uh, health. And the main comment they make about health is it's not acceptable that we have to pay a bribe to go to hospital. And that's a profound sense of, you know, that's perception of corruption. So when you see this, you see all the efforts, you know, and the need to diversify the economy, to create jobs <coughs> everywhere, and not only where there is gas and, and oil, but everywhere in the country, to improve the situation, to improve the training, and to improve the health system. These are probably main challenges we take from, from what people say. Immigration, this is a very sensitive question in Russia, you know this. It's a declining population. Uh, you have a lot of uh, foreign workers in Russia, especially from Tajikistan and, and uh, Kyrgyzstan and, uh, and uh, from the Caucasus. Uh, they work uh, mainly in construction uh, everywhere in Russia. You, you, you see uh, a lot of them. And uh, one key question is certainly for the future, the question about immigration. What's going to happen in a vast uh, natural resources rich country with a declining population? And I must say, and I go back, back to the health agenda, that probably one key challenge is to stop, stop the decline of the population. Uh, when you listen to the speeches, most of the speeches in Moscow by President Putin begins with this, with uh, demography, of the population, the need to act and, and to stop this. And one way is to increase life expectancy. You know that life expectancy for men in Russia today is 56, 57, which is very, very low. It's much higher for women. Probably vodka is part of the story. Uh, road accidents, but AIDS. You know that the main disease is tuberculosis. There is uh, some taboo about this. Nobody speaks about this. But this is this is a real challenge, uh, which is to to change uh, to change this. Okay, more questions. You see your hand. Yes, gentleman there. And um, yeah. What is your view on accounting standards and corporate governance in, the, uh, in, uh, in Russia in comparison with the uh, Western world? Compared with? With the Western world. <laughs> okay. Uh, gentleman over there. What is your view on the current relations between London and Moscow? And do you think the British Council should change its approach in Moscow? <laughs> All right. Um, Uh, what do you see as the major risks uh, that Russia will not move closer to the West but will move away from the West? One more at the back there. Thank you. How would you comment uh, last uh, week uh, trade agreements between the, the President Putin in Bulgaria, which uh, he made in Bulgaria? from European and from Russian perspective. And one, the final one up there for the gentleman 
uh, holding the parcel, which I hope is not ticking. Yeah. Not explosive. Right. How easy is it to open a company in Russia? Uh, to make it very simple, corporate governance, uh, I would say, totally unknown 15 years ago, an unknown concept. Uh, eight years ago, uh, hardly understood. I remember a presentation in 2000, 2001 in London by a Russian company, a large Russian company. The CEO came at a, you know, a slide, and it was the, the organization of the company. And he had put in, in green all the positions he had filled with Western managers just to show I am good. And uh, he said, I'm going to make all of this totally green. Uh, Today, you will not see this any longer. Uh, it's, it, the, the way the understanding of this question has, has, uh, has improved is absolutely amazing. And today, you see many, many Russian companies for which corporate governance, from my viewpoint, is certainly equivalent. I will not compare to any specific company, but equivalent to what you, you can find. And I must say that the wish to tap the international markets by IPOs, uh, through IPOs, and so on, has done a lot. Mm -hmm. you, know, you, you have to achieve certain standards and to be able to sustain them to, to succeed. The question is not there. The question is, what's coming behind? And, and you see many companies for which you have to be to do the job once more, which is, and that's what we try to do case by case. Uh, but. I must say that today, the understanding value of, uh, um, you know, I remember in 2000, I had to explain to some uh, political leaders in Russia what, what it means to have audited uh, accounts. <laughs> he said, yeah, this is very, very smart. That's a mistake we have made. We have never audited the statistic of the gospel. So that's great. <laughs> you are very smart. But today, nobody would explain this. It's understood independent directors, it is understood. Risk management, it is understood. So you, you see, you see, okay, probably there's still some progress to be made on disclosure. Uh, but, okay, you, you, you have to go step by step. And I must say, the more Russian companies are involved in the uh, global capital market, the better it is. Or I'll, I'll make the answer a different way. If we, and I, now I say we, it's, it's mainly the private sector investors and, and market people are tough questioning companies. That will improve the whole system because companies which get access to capital increases, resources to grow their own business will be the benchmark. And I must say it, it works uh, reasonably well. London, Moscow, you will allow the neutrality of an international organization <laughs> not to interfere into a, a, a debate, which is part of what I've mentioned, you know, uh, which is one of the paradox. Uh, you see a growing relationship, a growing interdependence, and at the same time tensions and uh, harsh words and actions. And uh, it's, clear, it's clear that it does exist. It's part of the, of the story. I must say that we do not see any spillover on, on especially the business activities, the investment activities. And uh, uh, this question must be dealt with by governments and uh, be kept uh, under, uh, under control. Uh, on, on the question uh, you mentioned about the, 
would Russia go the Western way? Or I think your question is good. Uh, I, I think this is a, a key question mark for the future. Uh, Russia have uh, mainly two possibilities. Uh, uh, the, the one uh, you understand I, I, I like, which is moving the, uh, the Russian way, but towards Europe, more integrated into the global economy on, on, on shared values and, and, and practices. I, I think this is the wish of the reformers in Russia. I think this is the wish of the large companies in Russia. This is what they want to do. But it's clear that Russia has a different way to move forward, which is a more uh, Russian way, looking in a different way at Western Europe, uh, trying to have a more standalone approach. I'm not sure this is the wish. Uh, especially when you speak with Russian business people, this is not what they, what they want to do. But that story will be built together. I'm not so sure that this uh, type of choice will be only in the hands of, the, of, of Russia. It's also in the hands of in our, our hands. And I would like to insist on a point I've made before, uh, which is uh, the debate about reciprocity. It's clear that uh, uh, Russian companies in the private sector want to invest in the West, and they begin to. Uh, from time to time, we see harsh reactions. Mm -hmm. Centrica, uh, AADS, uh, you see a reaction. And uh, sometimes uh, they are highly, uh, we, we need to speak more about this. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm used to do this, and uh, the understanding of why we don't want is not very clear. And uh, it needs a, a, a lot of discussions. It has a lot to do with perception we may have about the what they have in mind, what these companies want to do. Uh, but, you see, when I see the large banks uh, going to China, Singapore, Qatar to raise funds uh, for mm -hmm. the reasons you know, you, you can see that this debate is going to take place with, uh, with Russian money. And the more Western standards are respected, the more the rule of law is understood, the more corporate governance is respected, the better it is. I have no doubt. We, but, if we play, if we play this way, I didn't pick up a question uh, uh, which was made. Didn't answer a question which was made, uh, uh, asked before about uh, aviation. This is a very good example. Uh, aviation is part of the strategic sector in Russia, uh, and you know that Russia has had very bright and has very bright uh, engineers in aviation. Uh, at the same time, the aviation industry had collapsed. Uh, at the same time. Russia has decided to buy Airbus and, and Boeing, and, and they know to uh, renew the fleet of uh, Aeroflot and other companies. They have wished to go back uh, to, uh, to a more positive view and uh, develop uh, airplanes, and they have decided to build a, a regional jet. Uh, this has been asked to Sukhoi, which is a state-owned company. But you must understand the process. It's exactly, exactly what I've tried to explain to you. The design is made by Sukhoi. It is built in Sukhoi, in the plant in the Far East, but in partnership with Boeing, Elena, and Snecma. And there is a real partnership. And, and you put the two together, and you have an engine. You have a design. You have construction capacity. You have engineering capacity, and you have a plane, which is a regional jet for which they have a huge market. 
So even in the strategic sector, you, you see how it works, which is to, to really to create a partnership to build something and to recreate an, an industry. The Bulgarian deals are very interesting. Uh, you have mentioned uh, gas and trade. I would have mentioned also nuclear uh, with the uh, uh, restart of Belene. Uh, th this is part of, of what, what's happening in Central Europe. Because I've spoken about Europe, but Europe from the Russian, what, if you look at the Russian question, Europe is not united for one key reason many people have forgotten is that the network of gas pipelines of the central European countries is not linked to the west but to the east. Everybody had forgotten this a few years ago. <laughs> and uh, what has happened? All the leaders in central Europe have asked western countries in Europe to support, to invest money in building a bridge with the Western network, which is to get access to the Algerian gas or whatever it is, mainly LNG. Yeah? Well, the answer is quite slow. So uh, after this period, uh, countries in Central Europe have to look at their own situation and try to see what they, they can do to secure a uh, future. You have seen this in Hungary, and you see this in Bulgaria. And it's clear that Bulgaria has, has always had very good relationship with Russia. Bulgaria has, uh, from the Russian viewpoint and from the Bulgarian viewpoint, a key role to play in the Western Balkans and in the route to Greece and the southern market for gas. And Bulgaria has negotiated a deal about this. But if you look at this from the European viewpoint, it has also to do with the fact that there's no link with the West. Of course, it has a crucial importance for uh, the Western Balkans, not only in gas, but also in electricity, and that's the story about Belenet. And uh, you see Bulgaria becoming a very important hub for energy for the southeast of Europe. Of course, you have also some kind of negotiations in Belgrade about Nish, and they are very close to this, highly linked probably to the Kosovo story, but uh, you have negotiations there. Behind this, you have the other story I didn't mention, which is the debate about the pipelines and the Blue Stream pipeline, the Southern pipeline, or the Nabucco pipeline. But uh, it's what I meant before. Russia is a key partner to this. You know, it's, it's part of the debate. And uh, uh, I, I do understand that a country like Bulgaria cannot, cannot say we, we, we don't care about this. Yes, Russia is needed by them. And they have negotiations, and they try to make uh, the best agreement as possible. Very good. There's room for a couple more questions, if there are any. Otherwise, we will call this to a hold. Okay. Well, then it remains for me to thank you, the audience, and especially uh, President Jean Lemieux, for a, a fascinating presentation and a very good discussion. And uh, to thank again uh, FT Business for uh, supporting uh, this enterprise, and I hope to see you again at future events. Thank you, Mr. Mier. Thank you.